0: Let's go! Welcome to Make It Soon, the podcast where science fiction meets reality. Each week, we'll bring you a sensational sci-fi invention and showcase the number one nerds making
1: it come true. Coming up in this week's show...
2: Some scientists made a computer from
0: neurons of leeches. Did you guys hear about the study of the sex lizards sent out into space?
1: Brains in your Petri dish are some sort of conscious...
0: And now, your host, Marcus Martin.
1: Greetings, one and all. Welcome to Make It Soon, the podcast where science fiction meets reality. In this series, we're looking at some of the most iconic inventions from the world of sci-fi and meeting the incredible minds making them happen. I'm Marcus Martin, science fiction writer and author of the number one best-selling series, Convulsive. This week, we're talking brains in jars. You might need a Petri dish and a strong stomach. Let's find out. Joining me are two brilliant brainiacs, bringing grey matter on tap, quite literally, We've got neurologist Sylvia Benito-Kwiecinski. Honestly, Kima, how do you say your surname?
0: Americans say Kwiecinski, Polish people would maybe say Kwiecinski, but yeah, Kwiecinski is fine.
1: (laughs) You're Kima for sure. Welcome to the show. Kima, thank you so much for coming on.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm very excited.
1: Kima, you're currently doing a PhD in neuroscience at the University of Cambridge at the MRC Laboratory of Molecular Biology. Can you give us a quick summary of your PhD research?
0: human brain development and evolution and our model that we use to study this is uh, cerebral organoids.
1: Cerebral organoid, that's a neurologist hinder profile.
0: (laughs) I love it. Basically we study human brain development in a dish and my research is comparing early human brain development to other primate brains in order to understand human brain size evolution as our brain has three times more neurons than some of our most closely related living relatives.
1: (laughs) We're smashing it! In your face, great apes. (laughs) Joining us from London town, we've got the multi-talented connoisseur of big words and even bigger ideas. It's Freya Berry. Freya, welcome.
2: (laughs) Thank you, Marcus. Um, Yeah, all this talk of cerebral organoids is making me feel slightly intellectually inferior, but I'll do my best.
1: Come now, far from it. you studied English at Cambridge, you've worked as a journalist at Reuters, you're a talented writer. And you're also an investment analyst. I mean, firstly, thank you for investing your time in this podcast. <laughs> I'll
2: send you my check. I
1: mean, yeah. And secondly, I'm dying to ask, you covered the twenty sixteen US election from New York. What was that like?
2: <laughs> it was kind of crazy. Um, let's get say it didn't go the way that we thought it was going to go. So at sort of one AM on election night, we were sort of like, Oh, we've got this pre written piece ready, but we didn't write really write the other piece. <laughs> that was exciting. That's what journalism's about.
1: In many podcasts, the 2016 US election would be by far the most mind-boggling phenomenon, but not today, because we're talking about brain organoids. So <laughs> the first known example of a brain in a jar dates back to 1860. I've got a quote from this guy called James Lee on Twitter, who you can find him at Monster Bestiary. He says, in 1860, we find the very first example of the brain in a jar trope, courtesy of Le Prince Bonifacio by author Louis Olbach. In this satire, the eccentric Dr. Maforio claims he can remove brains with a spoon and keep them alive in jars to extend life and promote rest. Kima, that's pretty much what you guys do, right?
0: Oh, yeah, of course. (laughs) I'm just imagining the size of the spoon that this guy was using.
1: Going back to our tour of Brains in Jars through sci-fi. So 1924, we got The Brain in a Jar, where I think, you know, hey, they said the name of the film. But obviously, 1924, it was a book. Uh, It was actually a short story in a sci-fi magazine in Chicago, 1960s it appears in the star trek series and then in 2000s you've got futurama you've got uh you know abraham lincoln orson wells william shatner they all appear as just heads in jars chatting away which is slightly different to a brain in a jar but close enough that i feel it's legit to mention oh i've got a question for you guys Kima and freya let's let's go with uh, freya first if you could go through history and recreate one person's functional brain in a jar who would you choose and what would you want from them
2: Assuming I can speak ancient Greek at this point, I'd probably have a chat with Aristotle.
1: Oh!
0: He got his fingers into a lot of pies.
1: Kima, the same question to you. If you could go through history and recreate one person's brain in a jar, who would you choose and what would you want from them?
0: If we recreated this functioning brain, would it just be their DNA and then it has to go through the whole development of becoming their brain? Or would it just be like their brain from the past suddenly in the future? Maybe this is why I can't enjoy sci-fi properly. I'm like, how?
1: Kima, never read my books because you found plot holes in a question. (laughs) Right, we've done the history of sci-fi, brains in jars, going back to 1860. Kima, can you tell us when the first actual organoid was made?
0: Yeah, so here is the clear definition. A collection of organ-specific cell types that develop from stem cells or organ progenitors and self-organize.
1: It's not a clear definition if you use the word progenitor. (laughs) This is organoid 101. What is it?
0: So over the past century, we have been able to form organ-like structures in vitro. And actually in 1907 even, it was shown with sea sponges, which are very basic organisms that you could dissociate all their cells and they would be able to self-organize into a new sea sponge. Here, what we're showing is we can tear all the cells away from each other and the cells have this program built into them where they're able to find each other and group together in the proper orientation. And so there were lots of studies in the 50s and 60s, where they would do more complex organisms. So with chick embryos, they would take different organs like the kidney or the skin and dissociate them. which Dissociate just means making them all single cells and just messing it all up. And the cells were able to form the organ again. So there's some debate as to what the first organoid was, but I think the sort of first examples are in the 70s where they took breast epithelial tissue from the mammary glands and they were able to form these structures that could produce proteins that are found in breast milk. So I think the definition of an organoid is that it needs to resemble the organ in terms of the tissue architecture and be able to self-form that architecture and it needs to also be capable of reproducing some function of that organoid.
1: Sorry, Kima, I'm I'm really, I'm trying to be my most mature self, right? But I thought we were going down a route of when was the first brain in a vat created? And what you're actually saying is the first organoid we made was a single tit in a jar.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That is one of the first examples, yeah. I think around the same time there were some liver cells that also performed liver functions, but
1: yeah.
0: Who pitched that
1: particular project? I'd love to be on the funding board when they're just like, sorry, you, w- you want to do what? And just like, just one tit in a jar. That's all we're asking. It's not too much.
0: <laughs> if you're going to write a press release on it, I guess tit in a jar would be a good sort of... If Freya wants to spin the story,
1: <laughs> I'd be spinning that hard. Yeah. <laughs> Go on, Freya, what would, your, what would your headline be? I'd
2: be brilliant. Now I've talked about spinning. Now I'm just
0: picturing a rotating tit in a jar. So... <laughs> <laughs> organoids as we know them today, I'd say probably the first ones were made over 10 years ago when it started becoming big was these intestinal organoids made by the Clavers lab in the Netherlands. Since the 90s, we've been studying brain development, but in like 2D. So we were able to form sort of 2D like brain structures that were sort of organized. After this, we were able to use these little gels to grow brain organoids in 3D. So I'd say the organoid field has really expanded in the past 10 years. And now a lot of body organs, there's now an organoid version of it where you can at least form primitive structures of that organ. So there's even tongue organoids, liver, kidney, lung, you name it. (laughs) A
1: well-stocked organ shop.
0: Exactly. Can you do eyes?
1: Oh
0: yeah, that was actually before brain organoids, the optic cup, which is basically forming the future eye. That was one of the first 3D parts of the brain that was made, yeah.
1: That's so gross. That reminds me of Minority Report. Like, really (laughs) early on, Tom Cruise gets an eye transplant. You're like, ugh! It's a very small part of the film, but it's not a nice one. Kima, you mentioned at the start that we make all of these cells, I think by, we would take an existing cell structure and kind of blitz it, so all the cells fragment, and then we see if they get back together again. But how do we make our own organoids from scratch?
0: With some organs, if they're simple, you can just break them up and they'll grow back together. For intestinal Organoids, you can take adult stem cells, but with the brain, you have to really go back to basics in order to get the proper structure. You need to start from the early stages of development. So, what we do is we use pluripotent stem cells, and these are cells that basically can form any cell in the body. They have the full potential. What we do is we direct them through the stages of development and promote brain fates. Basically, the first thing you make is if you grow these cells in a 3D structure, they form this thing called an embryoid body. And so what we're basically doing is just watching the natural ability of cells to form all these different structures in a dish and we're just providing the right environment. My supervisor compares it to gardening. Just you take a seed, you give it the correct nutrients, the sunlight, the water, and then you just watch it form the plant. There is still some level of spontaneity, like everything in biology. So, we don't always get pure brain tissues. So probably the freakiest example is if you're looking down the microscope at your organoid and you see it twitch slightly because the organoid has somehow developed a muscle or heart tissue. Oh! <laughs> and it's really no. scary.
1: You know, that's so weird, right? Because that's a very emotional response. What we're looking at in this jar is we're saying it's no more alive than the other version, which isn't. Twitching, right? Because these are just clumps of non-sentient cells. But the fact that it suddenly twitches makes us relate to it in a different way.
0: Yeah, it's true. The moment you see it moving, it's like, wow, it's alive, even though, yeah, obviously the cells are all alive in all organs. But yeah, something about movement really yeah, triggers that response. Sounds like the moment, the lightning bolt from above. It's alive.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's the Mary Shelley moment, isn't it?
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: Hey, Kima, how has the field expanded since we kicked off in earnest 10 years ago?
0: Now, I really feel like organoids have been established as a proper model. They're being used to study a lot of diseases. I'm sure by the time this podcast comes out, there will be papers on what coronavirus is doing in brain organoids. There's already a lot of papers in organoids in general looking at them. And for example, they've looked at vascular organoids and shown that the coronavirus can enter the endothelial cells here. So this is a way that they can see how the virus gets transferred from the lung to the blood system and how it might spread to other organs
1: i'm thinking of this 2017 harvard study now is there something significant in that this harvard group were able to rear organoids and keep them alive for nine months
0: yeah so that's one of the really cool things is because obviously what we're we're starting from the beginning of development so we're looking at all of the steps of brain development and obviously um Humans have a long uh, gestational period, but if you keep organoids alive for a long time, and these are brain organoids that form various parts of the brain together, you're able to start seeing mature photoreceptors, which are the light sensitive cells in the retina. And the interesting thing was that these were actually shown to be functional with other parts of the brain. So they found that the neurons in the organoid are active and show activity, but they also saw that this activity could be regulated and changed by light exposure. So that's really cool as it starts showing that we can form circuits in organoids.
1: So, yeah, this is like, we're getting up towards higher brain function.
0: Yeah, and these cells can respond to the environment. That's
1: insane. I've got a question for Freya. If you could choose one organ from Kima's curiosity shop of organoids, and we've heard apparently almost all of them are available now, and and you could grow lots of mini versions, which organ would you go for?
2: Tricky one, isn't it? Because, I mean, I thought the brain, but, I I mean, I I don't... You know, I didn't really know what I'd do with it, you know. And then I thought the spleen maybe, just because I didn't really know what it is, and I quite like to have a look at it. <laughs> <laughs> Actually I think I'm gonna go for the lungs. I've been doing some reading about free diving. I just quite like to get some lungs and see what happens to them. Apparently they can compress the size of a fist. Whoa. Yeah, exactly. They're crazy organs and I don't think they get enough press, you know?
1: I love that. And I love the idea of you doing a free dive to the depths of the ocean to see how they would cope. I'm
2: also terrified of deep waters. So be me personally doing it but i'd send someone down with me yeah,
1: yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, send a butler down with your lab-grown extra lungs and see who floats back
2: <laughs> that's how i experiment vicariously
1: prayer what would be your biggest fear of growing brains in Petri dishes? If
2: you look at writers who've written about this stuff, everything from Tennyson's Typhonus, who's the Greek guy who wished for eternal life but forgot to ask for eternal youth as well, so just sort of withered away, and was <laughs> to roll Dahl as a story about a husband who, after he dies, ends up as a brain with an eye attached and is able to glare at his wife. <laughs> I, I guess the question for me is, you know, if these brains can actually <laughs> think um, if there is consciousness? We've got ourselves a problem
1: i think that is actually a perfect segue into the next thing i wanted to discuss which is indeed one of the biggest concerns around these brain organoids that we are currently growing is the notion that you might be creating a conscious brain and unfortunately effectively torturing it but here's what ed young at the atlantic had to say on that matter back in 2018 he said the human brain contains 172 billion cells The biggest brain organoids don't have the full set of cells or anywhere near that for a working brain. They contain two to three million cells. He's saying on their own, their neurons don't form networks like those in our heads. They don't sense, learn, or make memories. They are emphatically not brains in jars. They're not mini-brains either, in the same way that a doorknob is not a mini-building. Kema, do you agree with Ed Yong's summary?
0: Yeah, I think the doorknob analogy is quite a good one. There's 170 billion cells in the adult brains, 86 billion of those are neurons, and another half are supporting glial cells. So basically, yeah, I agree with him. We're not modelling mini-adult brains. We're sort of modelling regions of mini-developing fetal brains, but it's not organised in the proper orientation, so if we're to use the house analogy, we have different bits of the house in the wrong orientations. Uh, it's a teenage bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe. maybe. It's,
1: it's just a mess in there.
0: Yeah. And maybe you'd find like a doorknob on the side of a bathtub. Yeah, or- and
1: there'd, there'd be a sock on it because it's a teenage bedroom.
0: <laughs> exactly. I've got a question
1: for Freya, actually. Freya, you, you said your main fear was that these organoids might be conscious. Now, from what you've heard so far, we're at the stage now where we can keep them alive for nine months, we can actually see some higher functions emerging, we can see organoid brains that are responsive to light and such like. How would you possibly know whether or not it's conscious if it can't communicate with us?
2: Well, exactly. And I think we've got to talk about The Matrix, surely. If I'm a brain in a jar, in this fake reality, I guess I'm really on the side of Cypher in that film, when he says ignorance is bliss. I mean, does it really matter? I quite like existence. It might be that I'm in reality it, that's somewhere, but does it matter what's real, so long as you perceive it as such? Maybe, maybe not.
1: Whoa! Okay, this is next um, level. So it's not a problem, actually, that they're conscious, so long as they're having a really great time.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, did you see the real world in The Matrix, it did not look like it. <laughs>
1: let's say the brains in your petri dish are some sort of conscious. Does it bother you at all that we can't communicate with these things?
0: It would bother me if I thought that brain organoids had consciousness at the state that they're in now, of course, yeah, and I think it's very important that the field as it progresses and we create more complex brain structures, it's important to keep up discussion with ethicists and with people actually studying consciousness and cognition because I just, I don't even know what the proper definition of consciousness is? You know, the number of neurons we're making in brain organoids is probably in the range of the number of neurons that are in a cockroach. So, like, do we even think cockroaches are conscious with their organization of neurons? And then ours are quite disorganized, even though we have examples where we're seeing primitive circuits forming. I just don't think the stage that they're in, they're capable of consciousness. But then again, who knows? Obviously, consciousness lies in the brain and in neurons. So, who knows what a bunch of neurons firing to together. together in a specific pattern is if it's creating some sort of experience. And uh, it will be interesting to see if scientists are able to, in actual humans, find a pattern of brain activity that's associated with consciousness to see if organoids are also showing these similar patterns. Yeah, I don't think we're there yet, but things are progressing quite a lot in this field. So yeah, it's important to bear in mind. And I think I I would care if they were conscious, of course.
1: Kima, I don't know if you heard of the Cambridge Declaration on Consciousness, which was signed in 2012 by basically just a bunch of prominent neuroscientists with good old Professor Stephen Hawking to sort of lend his endorsement. And as it says, we declare the following. The absence of a neocortex does not appear to preclude an organism from experiencing affective states. Now I've summarized what is like a two page quite involved document there to (laughs) reduce it to one line. But essentially what they're saying is that you don't have to have the complexity of a fully developed human brain to experience things such as emotions, self-awareness, facets of what we would consider to be conscious experience. And it's really interesting that you, you talked about cockroaches because we're currently developing organoids with the sort of effective computational power of a cockroach brain. And in another episode we talked about on space bugs, we found a, a group I think, I can't remember if it was DARPA or someone else who are manipulating cockroaches' brains, living cockroaches. So it's actually going to be really sucky if we all, in a few years' time, realise that actually they're very aware of what's going on and that everyone's deeply miserable. But I feel like this is potentially too bleak a tangent for, for our gay, frivolous stroll down the park of, ooh, isn't science fun? So let's dispense with all of this heavy talk on consciousness, like the good part-time ethicists that we are on this show. Freya, did you want to jump in before we sweep it right under the carpet? It
2: gets interesting when science bumps up against philosophy, and I guess the scientist's job I mean, to make a massively sweeping generalisation that will probably offend Kima, is is to work out the how, and the philosopher's job, is, the ethicist's job is to work out the why and whether we should, and everything that has seemed technical is now edging closer, and at what point is it too late to do anything about it?
1: Absolutely. I mean, a very real example of that dichotomy would be going back to Kima's first example of an organoid. You know, the scientists are saying, how do we create a tit in a jar? And the philosophers are saying, why should we pay them to do that? Talk about some examples of organoid research because these are absolutely boggling. Kiva, what is spinal fluid? Where is it found and what's it for? So
0: the cerebral spinal fluid is basically a clear fluid that surrounds your brain and your spinal cord. It has several functions. It sort of cushions your nervous system from injury, but it also serves as delivering nutrients and hormones and signaling molecules and also as a waste for the brain. It's basically found surrounding the brain. And wait, what was the rest of your question? <laughs> Uh, what what's it for? Oh yeah, what's it for? Yeah, so it's a basically a supportive structure. And it is produced by this part of the brain called the choroid plexus. And it's not actually made up of neural cells, but another cell type. And the reason our lab started studying this is that we just kept on getting organoids that were making these big sort of cysts. So and we were like, what is this? Like, what is happening? So you just see, would see your normal organoid, which looks like uh, I, I think the best way to describe what an organo- a brain organoid looks like is a sort of piece of chewed gum. Oh,
1: I've got a semi-conscious cricket brain stuck to my shoe.
0: <laughs> exactly, you thought it was gum all along. Yeah. But yeah, so we in our lab we started seeing these um, cysts forming with clear fluid, and then a postdoc in my lab, Laura Pellegrini, her paper just came out recently, she decided to investigate uh, this tissue more properly. So she created a protocol where we weren't just spontaneously getting it, but where uh, you, she actually directed um, the organoids to form choroid plexus.
1: For any Alan Partridge fans listening, the uh, plural of that is a uh, choral plexi.
0: <laughs> exactly. Choroid plexus organoids in the singular form. And it's really cool because uh, it's the first time where we've been able to in vitro make cerebrospinal fluid from developing human tissue in uh, 3D. And what she was also able to model is this, blood to CSF brain barrier. It works as a gate into drugs that can get into the brain. It prevents a lot of toxic substances from entering and circulating the brain, which is why infections in the brain are actually extremely rare and also extremely dangerous because you have these uh, protective gates that don't allow molecules of certain sizes uh, or things that don't have a receptor to enter the brain. And so It was really cool because she first showed it as a proof of concept I don't know if you're familiar with Parkinson's disease uh, treatments, but basically Parkinson's disease arises from uh, loss of these dopaminergic neurons in the brain, which basically means neurons that make dopamine. To treat Parkinson's, you basically have to give brains more dopamine, but dopamine cannot cross the barrier into the brain. Uh, So you have to give the precursor of dopamine called levodopa, along with something that inhibits it to turn into dopamine in the blood system, allowing levodopa to cross into the brain, but the inhibitor does not. And then once in the brain, it can make dopamine. So it's really interesting, this model that she's come up with, because a lot of clinical trials actually failed just due to the simple pharmacokinetics of drugs. Just a lot of things can't cross into the brain. Kima,
1: we're going to come up for air because this is intense. (laughs) This is great. Just to summarize, uh, listeners who might not be PhD neuroscientists, for example, me, it sounds like you've got a brain and then that is, surrounded by cerebral spinal fluid, a gate around it, which is something that we are now able to synthesize. By that, I mean, we've created an organ that can produce it. So we've got this stuff on tap. And your lab has been able to prove that we can get stuff into that fluid to then cross the barrier. Is that right?
0: Yeah, the cool thing about the study is that these cells not only make this clear fluid, but they also have this barrier function, which is very important in studying how drugs get into the brain.
1: I think one of the things you found was the predictive abilities of this sort of method that you guys have developed. Can you talk us through that?
0: There's already a big repertoire of drugs that we know have function in the brain, like antidepressants and drugs that we know don't enter the brain, like drugs drugs used in cancer. So Laura and my lab tested these drugs as a proof of concept to show yes, the antidepressant crosses into the brain and these chemotherapy drugs don't. And then uh, she went further and she looked at a drug that had shown to have a fatal effect during the clinical trials. It was a drug that's meant to be used for chronic pain and multiple sclerosis, which is a disorder of the nervous system. What she found is that for some reason, this drug, even though in other animal models it wasn't shown to do it, in the human brain choroid plexus organoids, she saw that it enters, but for some reason it starts to accumulate over time rather than decrease. Increasing, And this could be part of the reason for why it had this fatal effect just because of the way that this drug behaves in human tissues. So I think it's really cool because this model could have been a red flag before going to clinical trials if, if this model had already existed. Yeah,
1: so this, so this is really significant because you could now potentially test drugs before applying them to humans, but you, you can see it on a human physiological system.
0: Yeah, I think it's really cool. that we can do
1: that. Looking forwards then, do you think there's any chance we'll be able to use these techniques to study things like drug addiction?
0: I think there was a recent paper on the effects of meth on fetal development using organoids. I think it would be really interesting to look at the opioid epidemic as well and see the effect of these drugs on fetal development.
1: (laughs) So a stormtrooper, a Jedi and a Wookiee walk into a cantina bar and the Jedi says, these are not the droids you are looking for. The Stormtrooper says, These are not the droids I am looking for. And the Wookiee says, Because <laughs> that's literally all they ever say in those movies. I mean, the galaxy's hardest fighters, but laziest language students. <laughs> also, the Wookiee did a lot of pre drinks before they set out. You can make a better punchline happen. All you've got to do is head to makeitsoon.com slash donate. All donations will go towards something funnier for next season. That's makeitsoon.com slash donate this whole field is extremely promising in terms of being able to safely start to model in very real terms how our brain works and how different substances impact our brain let's talk a little bit more about the disease implications freya can you talk us through what's being done with brain organoids and alzheimer's
2: Yes. So there's this guy called Philip Bell, who's written an article recently about how he donated tissue for dementia research. This project's being funded by the Wellcome Trust. They took a plug of skin from his arm and they're growing a mini brain. And that's to understand the neurodegenerative process involved in, in two of the specific types of dementia. So Alzheimer's and something called frontotemporal dementia. And basically they think those might start when two specific proteins grow misshapen. They stick together and then the neurons start to die. And what they're trying to do by growing these mini brains is actually try and watch those changes taking place. I guess what I found interesting was he does think of his mini brains as as mine, he said, <laughs> and what himself, but you know, some way sort of related to him, which I guess just also shows the ethical minefield that we're sort of on the cusp of and there's sort of emotional things and not necessarily rational, but just are the way that we think as people.
1: A biologist friend of mine had to have a small operation to remove an abnormal growth, and afterwards he was just like, can I have the growth please? I want to study it in my lab. And they're like, sorry, by law we're not allowed to give you the bit of your body that we just cut out of your body. (laughs)
0: I know of some scientists that have their mother's kidney in a freezer in the lab. What?
1: <laughs> Hang on, does their mother know that they've got her kidney? I don't
0: know, actually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you hear of weird things that, you know. That's literally the weirdest
2: thing I've ever heard of being in a freezer. Ever since my friend who's into, into taxidermy told me she had a stuffed owl in her freezer. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay.
1: I think Ben and Jerry's, Magnums, great. I'd love to come mm-hmm. round. Oh, you've got a stuffed owl in your freezer? Why don't we meet in the pub? Kima, did you want to add anything on
0: diseases? You have to take it with a grain of salt because diseases like Alzheimer's and dementia is like specifically a disease of an aging brain. And you're basically putting these proteins into a fetal brain because even if you grow them for a long time, these organoids, they're still going to represent quite an early stage in life. I still think it's a valuable thing to do to learn from, but it's also like, yeah, harder to accurately model. The other thing I find quite interesting to point out to people as well is a lot of brain tumors actually look like little organoids. They're starting, to turn on early developmental events again. So just by studying brain development, you're actually looking into a lot of cancer pathways.
1: That's super weird. Could you do that? Could you just, no, this is going down a weird angle. Well. Let's do it. Could we safely modify a uh, cancerous tumour and just see if you could grow a mini-you on the side of yourself?
0: It would be just a lot easier to take one of your own stem cells and grow a miniature version of yourself. Oh, fantastic.
1: What's the turnaround on these? And is delivery included?
0: <laughs> I mean, who would want it? Who's our market? Who wants a uh, mini my version? Old housemate,
1: my old housemate, <laughs> actually, who, who came onto this show. and I won't say which, which person it is, but... Uh, I remember vividly we had a house Christmas meal And we're sort of talking about If you could create a clone of yourself Would you? And his answer was like Not only would I create a clone of myself But I'd create five clones of myself And replace all of you with them And if I had to kill you to do it Even better (laughs) I I should add that this was very funny at the time He's not actually a sociopath Where have we got to? Ah, yes Bowie's oh, in space, or at least a little tiny bit of his brain could be. Kima, this goes back to that thing you were saying about one of the problems we have is that we're studying essentially very juvenile brains, fetal brains in these organoids because they're not very old, and we're trying to model the effects of degenerative long-term diseases like old age diseases need old brains. So last year, we sent some brain organoids into space, and I know you've got some views on this, Kima, and we're going to get to them. But I just want to be excited for a minute on behalf of all our listeners, because this is awesome. One month old brain cells reared by the University of California, San Diego, were sent into space in July 2019 to be grown in microgravity on the ISS for a month. Their aim was to see how future brains might develop on long space journeys. But we know that some types of cells age faster in space than they do on Earth. So space could potentially offer an opportunity to fast forward into a cell's biological
2: future. How feasible is it to do this on a repeated larger scale? I mean, presumably it's incredibly expensive to send anything up into space, let alone mini brainlets. And the other thing I wondered was, might there actually be other unknown effects on the cells other than accelerated aging while you're up there?
0: So yeah, Marcus said I had some views on it. And I mean, I do think it's really cool to study this because it it, it is so sci-fi and futuristic. Like we might have to go because we've ruined our planet. So we do need to understand like how would the brain develop in these environments I guess I'm not a physicist, but I just feel like you would be able to make microgravity environments on Earth without going through the effort of sending it out into space. I feel like that should be a possibility. Whoa, whoa,
1: whoa. This is... keeping <laughs> you're starting to sound like me, and I've got to hit that in the bud because you're here to be the voice of scientific rigor and not just look across the disciplinary field and be like, yo, physicist why are we sending you all of our cells? Can't you just create microgravity on Earth? I feel like I, I'm going to get a physicist on next time, and they're going to they're yeah. have some views on that. I'm going to pitch it to them.
0: Okay, ask them. But I feel like you could create microgravity in a lab condition. I'm not going to say how. I know I'm the scientist on the show, but that's not Um But I do think it's an interesting question. And yeah, they say that those proliferated more rapidly, but I guess the question would be, is this a universal thing across all of the cells in the body. So I imagine that it would have different effects on different cell types and idea like if you got pregnant in space, you would probably experience a miscarriage because your body really isn't made for that. But I do think it's an interesting question. I think also they found a lot of astronauts experience dementia and other neurodegenerative diseases, right? Oh damn. so even though the organoids model developing brains, it's interesting to see why does the microgravity have this effect on people that are in space for a long time. I mean, I just feel like on the topic of getting pregnant in space, I saw Alien, and (laughs) I don't necessarily need that in my head. Uh, Yeah. Did you guys hear about the study of the sex lizards sent out into space? (laughs) Great headline. Um, No, what's this? I don't know if it was geckos or some sort of a lizard-like animal, and they sent them into space, and they were basically having sex in space. And I don't (laughs) know if they produced any offspring or not, but I guess one thing you could do is take another organism and see if it can have viable offspring in space. I think that would be an interesting first step to seeing if we could actually reproduce in space. (laughs) Science.
1: Kima, you've already said, wouldn't it be easier to just invent microgravity on Earth? I love that. I feel like physicists might say, no, it wouldn't be easier. But a company in Kentucky is working with NASA and they're called Space Tango, which is a fantastic name. And they make hardware that can grow these organoids autonomously. So we're sending them up into space. And actually, instead of needing the usual labor intensive round the clock care that they get on Earth, Space Tango created these things called Cube Labs, which shrink your regular lab down into a box that can be held in your hands and literally be plugged into the ISS and then just left for a month. And then a month later, they send it back down and you're like, cool, we just some science up in space. Kima, is your regular lab a bit bigger than a box?
0: Yes, unfortunately. And it requires a lot of human labor to keep these organoids alive and happy, especially stem cells. You have to feed them every single day or else they'll just start differentiating into another cell type. Oh,
1: don't you just hate it when your stem cells differentiate? Yeah. <laughs> Fine. I had a nickel.
0: They'll start becoming a specialized cell type. And so, yeah, you constantly have to be maintaining uh, this feature by giving them the right cocktail of ingredients and organoids as well. Okay,
1: so it sounds like all of the least rewarding aspects of childcare, and then you never get to the point where it fetch you things like the remote and slippers.
0: One of the most frustrating things is when you've spent a month feeding this organoid, caring for it, and then it's formed the wrong type of tissue spontaneously. You get a bunch of retina or the the choroid plexus as mentioned before when what a lot of us are specifically interested in is the cortex so and you sometimes just spontaneously get the wrong type of tissue but you won't really know for a month into the whole protocol and you've spent so much time just feeding it and keeping it alive and happy and then it didn't make what you intended to make so it would be nice if a robot could do all the feeding for us and i think some labs do have some automated feeding definitely
1: i love to think of the idea that i think all of your organoids came will be in some sort of therapy because they'll just be like, you know, mum just wanted me to be a choroid plexus and I just disappointed her because I wanted to be a dancer. Kima, aside from automated labs, you've said these little organoid things are pretty needy. What other techniques are we trying to keep them alive for longer?
0: In our system, we don't actually have the blood vessels in the brain. And in the early stages, it's fine. But obviously, as it starts to grow, it needs oxygen that it can't just get from the atmosphere because we're growing them in dishes. So that's one of the problems. That's why they can only become sort of lentil sized because the inside of the organoid there doesn't have enough nutrients and oxygen because of the way that It diffuses into the organoid, so you get this necrotic core, it's called, which is just a bunch of dead cells in the middle. Oh, dreamy. So there are groups working on keeping them alive for longer and allowing them to become more mature. So one example of this is work that's been done in our lab by Stefano Giandomenico, I'll give the shout outs here. Uh, He did work in his PhD where we basically, once the organoids reach a certain state, you cut them into these thin slices, basically, and you grow them as these slice cultures. And what this allows is that now the neurons are exposed to all the nutrients and the oxygen so they're able to mature more than before. Another way of doing this is by transplanting organoids into a rodent brain. They thought that the blood vessels from this rodent incorporated into the organoid and you were able to get more mature organoids. But obviously we're gonna have to find a way to engineer this and I think a lot of people are trying to grow brain organoids in the presence of cells that are gonna become blood vessels, but it still doesn't exist properly yet.
1: So currently our two options, if we're not using automated intervention, in terms of trying to develop organoids into maturity then, which hinge on this ability to, as you say, vascularize them, which is essentially just ensuring that they all get all parts of this this little brain organoid get equal access to blood and nutrients. Our two our two current tactics are to slice it like salami, <laughs> and then each little slither of salami gets its own little bath. Lovely. Or to strap a human brain onto the side of an existing
0: rodent's brain? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's basically like that. And obviously, that's not very feasible long term, and it's very complex. It involves surgical procedure and all that. And also, the brain is still going to be limited by the size of the cavity that you've made in the rodent brain. Uh, so it's cool to show that you it can be vascularized, but yeah, it's not going to be what's used in the long term. I
2: had a question. Why is it that when you cut the mini brain into slices, like how come that doesn't damage it or kill it? Like why does why can it still continue to function?
0: That's a good question. Because we're cutting them at 300 micrometers. They are really thin, but in terms of biology, you can have a lot of cells in that thickness. So I think probably you're damaging some of the cells on both of the surfaces, but the ones right underneath that will be very healthy, and it's still thin enough that all of the cells will get access to the nutrients. And you still have this 3D structure of the cells, yeah.
1: So clearly the realm of organoids goes beyond brain jars and petri dishes. This next experiment gets even weirder. Kima, your lab's not just been growing these brain organoids, but you've actually been setting them to work, is that right?
0: Yes, so building off from uh, these sliced organoids that we were talking about, the interesting thing that we saw is that now that the neurons were a lot happier and able to mature more, we noticed these axons forming around the outside of the organoid. Axons are how neurons are connected to each other and to other brain regions. The people in my lab thought okay, what happens if we actually give it a spinal cord? Because clearly it's searching for <laughs> something like that. And so what they did is that they took a developing mouse spinal cord, which still had some of the muscles next to the spinal cord attached. They grew them next to each other and the neurons from the organoid connected to the spinal cord and stimulating the organoids with electricity resulted in muscle contractions. So you could essentially control the movement of this mouse muscle from the human organoid. So it's basically formed a sort of functional circuit there
1: ew so you'll say we had a human brain organoid growing it was hankering for a spine as all good brains do they're just like i've loved me a spine i'm lonely in here and we put a mouse's spine in that and it's like that'll do beggars can't be choosers and it just fuses onto this mouse's spine and then just starts doing a little jig it starts twitching those mouse muscles. Yeah. It's a chimera.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I would officially use chimera, but yeah, it's basically we've. It's too late. It's up. out
1: there, Kima. It's <laughs> out there and it's been
0: retweeted as we speak. <laughs> I thought it yeah. Frankenstein. Yeah. And also, Love. also I should and maybe I should point out that it's maybe not a full circuit but it's a connectivity because I noticed I said use the word circuit and I'm like oh maybe I shouldn't use that. Uh but yeah, we formed a proper connection between human neurons and a mouse spinal cord, which then transmitted electrical information from the human neurons to the muscles uh, connected to the spinal cord, and they were able to contract. Oh wait, what was the original question this time around I got? No, there's no
1: question anymore. It's just the silent sound of horror, because that's deeply weird. So, Kima, I've got a question for you. So far, we've had brains growing in petri dishes. We sent them to space, sewn them onto the heads of rodents to see if they'll keep growing. I would say we're at a strong seven on the weirdness scale. Let's see if we can nudge that up to 7.5. Can you tell us about snake organoids?
0: Yeah, so not only can we make organs from humans, but we can also do it from other species if we know the right growth conditions that they need. This paper basically took cells from glands of snakes and were able to make snake venom organoids. So these organoids can produce venom, which is really cool because I think the whole process of actually extracting venom from a snake to study it is uh, quite difficult and probably not very pleasant for the snake. So to be able to generate this in a dish is very exciting. And I mean, because I was when I was reading it, I was like, but how common are actually snake bites? And I think it says in this article that there's a 100,000 people that die from snake bites a year and like nearly half what? a million that are uh, somehow debilitated by snake bites. Um, so it is an important field of research. And I think actually snake venom as well, historically has been used to develop some uh, drugs as well, because it has a, an effect on the nervous system. So maybe there will be some labs using snake venom organoids, extracting the venom, putting it on brain organoids, yeah. <laughs> seeing if they can develop some drugs from them.
1: Let's get back to human bodies for a minute. Kima might have touched on this earlier. Freya, what have organoids got to do with embryos?
2: Exactly. Yeah. So organoids, we're sort of thinking of them as mini brains or mini lungs or mini eyes or whatever. There's this 2020 Nature study talking about mini embryos, the full shebang, so to speak. They managed to create these embryo-like structures with basic components of heart and and, and the nervous system, not the brain or other cell types. So it's not like these could ever be actual viable fetuses.
1: Why are they doing this?
2: They're creating these things in order to study the way that the body develops during pregnancy. If you know how the embryo is actually developing, you can then work out why you can get miscarriages, why you get early developmental disorders like spina bifida, that kind of thing.
1: What are the advantages of using an organoid embryo over an actual fetus?
2: Well, because it means up to a point you can avoid the ethical concerns about researching on human embryos. In this study, they basically created a mimic of a fetus that's 21 days old. I guess if this technology progresses too far, you're going to run up against the same concerns anyway, because you're essentially creating an artificial but they do say that they're nowhere near that. That said, they do also expect to get to a point where they can develop these structures to have beating hearts, which is what happens at about 22 days
1: in the pregnancy cycle. It's exactly the sort of thing that would give Kima a mini heart attack when she looks down her microscope in the lab on a late evening and the thunder's (laughs) cracking and you're just like, oh my god, its heart is beating. (laughs)
2: The reason they're targeting the 21-day state is because the embryos take a big leap in their third week, so lots of changes happen. Something called gastrulation, whereby the body lays out its sort of blueprint for growth. The problem is no one's ever actually seen this because of national regulations often. Stopping you grow embryos beyond 14 days.
1: Those pesky regulators trying to Mm, stop us mm, going fully off-piste and growing artificial little chimera people with mouse spines. Mm. If you enjoyed Freya's use of the word gastration, by the way, definitely check out our episode on Artificial Wombs because it's littered with it. Thank you for that summary, Freya. I would say that's definitely slightly more reassuring than the mouse spine one. With that sort of trepidation, I'm now going to go back to Kima, who no doubt will deeply unsettle us all again. Kima, what's the big news in the world of organoid skin?
0: This is what I love about the organoid field is that a lot of organoids are made by accident when you're trying to make one type of tissue. And here, I think they were trying to make inner ear organoids in the beginning, and somehow uh, the signals were thrown off a bit, and they made skin organoids, which is probably Probably the skin that they're making resembles the skin that's near to your inner ear. <laughs> so really
1: specifically, they're growing ear skin.
0: Yeah, probably actually and it will be interesting for them to try to make skin from other regions. Are they also
1: growing lots of those cotton buds cuz you know it's not great being ear skin.
0: <laughs> actually I don't really know how ear wax is produced. Does it come out of the skin or yeah, I I don't know. I was thinking about the sebaceous glands and I'm like, "Oh, do we sweat a lot from the skin near our ears?" and yeah, what kind of sweat is that?
1: I feel like there's a very very niche subreddit thread that's just kicked off on that exact topic. Thanks you've ignited a very moist corner of the internet.
0: I think the reason that this is such a hot topic is because skin is an organ that you'd want to be able to transplant because it's so exposed and there's lots of burn victims and other scar tissue that you would want to be able to replace. So this is very exciting. Yeah,
1: and as I understand it, it's not just like skin up until now, which we've tried to grow, which is fairly basic, but they've they've got the whole shebang. We're talking fat, we're talking nerve endings, we're talking pituitary glands. It's like full mod cons skin.
0: Yeah, exactly, which is what is really cool. Yeah, You're taking it through the whole developmental process. You're able to make all of the cell types that exist in skin. The only problem with that is that obviously human skin takes a while to develop. So for it to mature properly, they had to transplant it onto these mice. But it was cool because they saw after transplanting onto mice in this like natural organismal environment rather than in a dish that uh, hair is actually sprouting from them. And I think they did it on a nude mouse as well so you see them <laughs> sprouting
1: out this show is made possible by the generosity of listeners like your good self this show is entirely self-made help us bring the next season fresh to your ears at maximum warp just head to makeitsoon.com donate it literally only takes a moment to donate, and it makes such a big difference. If you believe that this show deserves a future, makeitsoon.com donate. Help me to bring you more amazing sci-fi content. Thanks so much, I truly appreciate it, and I couldn't do it without you. Now, where were we? Presumably something deeply weird. Let's find out. So there's one angle we haven't discussed yet when it comes to brains in jars, and that is computing power. It's time to talk about wetware, and I'm not talking about that load of laundry you put on last night and then forgot all about it's going to smell weird no this is proper sci-fi high-tech dream of the future stuff wetware is computational power derived from organic structures it could be an actual brain in a jar rigged up to other machines or more realistically it could be specially designed computers which are built from organic materials instead of silicon chips if you're the sort of tech gadget fanatic who loves to get their hands on the latest kit you will be really excited to know that you already own some cutting-edge wetware. Your brain! So, Gabriel Popkin put it very neatly in a 2015 Nautilus article. He wrote, wetware took a big step forward several hundred million years ago with the evolution of the neuron, a type of cell that takes chemical input, converts it to a travelling electrical signal, and outputs further chemical signals. Now, in a way, it's remarkable that we have chosen to build an entirely new inorganic computing architecture, instead of using the organic one that nature built. What I do quite like there is is that Gabriel, when he's telling us what neurons do, he's quite like a plumber. I'm hearing this sort of very Rick and Morty, like Italian-American, you know, like, bada-bing, bada-boom, you know, it's like a neuron, it takes like a chemical input, you know, it puts it into electrical signal, hey, (laughs) you got some chemical signals, you know, what do you want me to tell you?
2: I, I enjoyed that, thank you for that little interlude.
1: My question for you is, have we made any progress in artificial wetware other than the existence of our own neurons? Yeah. So
2: back in 1999, some scientists made a computer taken from neurons of leeches, which they called, believe it or not, the leechulator.
1: (laughs) No, 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 (laughs) they did not. No, they did not. <laughs> That's outrageous.
2: Apparently they went with leeches because leeches are extensively studied. I don't know why they've been extensively studied, but they have been, so they understand how the neurons work. And they basically thought that a biological computer could come to a correct answer based on partial information rather than exact searches as per the sort of technological state at the time. So pre-Google autofill or autocorrect.
1: So. I would love to start typing a search into a leech. And I'm pretty sure all of the top results will be like, best way to drink a human's blood, best way to drink an animal's blood. uh, You're gonna get a lot of results on leeches for drinking animals' blood. Yeah, fairly
2: one (laughs) drug-minded. The leechulator was able to think for itself because the neurons could form their own connections with one another. They inserted microelectrodes into them and used the responses to the electrical stimulus to make each neuron represent a number. The last I heard of it, they were working on getting it to multiply. And I mean, given I was about eight years old, 1999, I was pretty much doing the same thing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think it's fair to say, Fred, uh, you've pulled slightly ahead in that drag race. It was neck and neck back in 1998, but I, I think <laughs> you have made some serious headway now.
2: More advanced than Leech. <laughs>
1: The later, 1999 might not be the future of computing. It's not not at the moment, you know, not in its current form, given that it, there's not been much breakthrough in terms of getting it to its times tables. Have there been any other attempts at wetware?
2: Yes, so much more recently there was a study about fungus. This is an attempt with something called basidiomycetes,
1: basically <laughs> mushrooms. Yeah, I had that once when I visited
2: Rome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, I googled it, and it basically includes those red and white toadstools that you get in sort of children's books, quite pleasingly. Um, nation is represented by electrical activity spikes, which they, I quote, realized against an interface made of fruit. <laughs> <laughs> I know.
1: <laughs> we've got the leechulator, and now we've got the fruiter face. We should add that this one's from like 2018. This is, you know, a full 20 years on. Leaps and bounds.
2: Mm, leaps and bounds. So we have <coughs> these mycelium networks, which I'd actually heard of before. So there's these networks between fungi, and that's basically how trees talk to each other, through their fungal networks, through their roots. And what you do is you get these mycelium networks, and you input logical values into the spikes or non-spikes of electricity. And through doing this, they actually got the fruit... The fruit interface, the fruit of face, to talk to each other in this way, mostly by stimulating them by, well, they tried burning them, that didn't work so well. <laughs> they tried dunking them in salty solutions, and that worked a little bit better. Um, so, as you might have guessed, we're still very much sort of pre prototype, but they think what you might be able to do with these mycelium networks is collect and analyze information about the soil or maybe even the air and make decisions on what to do about it so you can use it to sort of keep tabs on the ecosystem.
1: Whoa, okay, so what they're saying is potentially instead of sort of like installing, like an air quality detector, which is, you know, made of inorganic materials. Mm. We could just program a fungus to send out electrical signals that correlate with maybe atmospheric conditions. That's kind of the thing they're getting at here.
2: Exactly. Exactly. So you have sort of monitoring and then maybe even they could do something about it and creating some sort of feedback to that change state. Yeah.
1: Any Star Trek Discovery fans listening will obviously be very attuned to the promise of mycelial networks. So that's obviously a key facet of that series. Obviously, dare I say, it's slightly dubious their take on it, but they did have basically a pan-galactic tardigrade, so I think they took a few liberties with the actual science. Kima, Freya, it's been so great having you on the show. Thank you so much for being here.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed all your little jokes and stuff too.
1: Thank you, Kima. That is indeed what I call them. And that's indeed what my mother (laughs) calls them. My little
0: goat. Sorry, that sounded really
1: patronising. No, no, it sounded deeply familiar. It's usually followed by the phrase, are not welcome at the dinner table. (laughs) It's it's very much part of the course. Freya, I I don't want to, I'm not going to blow the gasket on it. You've got exciting stuff in the pipeline. It's all under wraps. I'm just going to, I'll say your Twitter address and we'll leave it at that. Do you want to plug anything?
2: Yeah, if anyone wants to check out my uninspirational Twitter feed, it's at types of berry.
1: Worst plug ever.
2: Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) if anyone at home
1: wants to check out freya's uninspirational twitter feed it is at (laughs) types (laughs) of berry to everyone listening at home thank you so much for joining us if you've enjoyed this week's show be sure to subscribe to the make it soon podcast and please leave us a review on whatever platform you're using thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time (laughs) guys that's a wrap thanks thank you for your time and your efforts and your brains i
0: really enjoyed it it was a fun discussion (laughs)